Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the History in the Maghreb series and was recorded on the 14th of February 2018 at Dar al-Asram in the Medina of Tunis. In this episode, Dr. Michael Lower, Associate Professor of History at the University of Minnesota, presents a lecture entitled Muhammad al-Mustansir of Tunis and the Northern Mediterranean. This lecture was moderated by Dr. Alan Fromhertz, Ames President. Next up is Michael Lower from the University of Minnesota. Um, the title of his talk is Muhammad al-Mustansir of Tunis and the Northern Mediterranean. Okay, we'll begin with the testy exchange. Sometime in late 1271, about a year after al-Mustansir had fended off the crusade of Louis IX, he sent an embassy to Baybar, Sultan of Egypt. Mustansir gave Bebars a present, 25 horses, two of which were reputed to be the fastest in Tunis. Bebars was not impressed. He gave the horses to his emirs, as I think we heard this morning, and complained that Al-Mustansir had not addressed him by his proper titles. Now that the crisis of the crusade of 1270 had passed, old tensions were surfacing again. Bebars responded to Al-Mustansir's gifts with a nasty critique. The emir was guilty of evil actions. Rather than fighting the Franks like he should, he hired them to fight Muslims. During the Tunis Crusade, he had refused to enter the battlefield, remaining hidden away even after Louis had died. He was guilty, in other words, of inverting the norms of Islamic rulership, which called for confronting rather than collaborating with the infidel. One such as you, the Sultan thundered, was not fit to have charge of the affairs of Muslims. So this contrast that Baybars drew between himself and al-Mustansir was overdrawn, but not by much. When necessary, Baybars made peace with the Franks, and al-Mustansir waged jihad against them. In general, though, Baybars was right to say that al-Mustansir's approach to the non-Muslim world was more open and accommodating than his. The difference had to do in part with their respective positions in relation to Europeans. Baybars faced a fractured Frankish presence that had grown isolated from its European homeland, while Amastensir had to deal with assertive European powers, Angevins, Aragonese, and Italian maritime republics in their own backyards. Just as important, though, in shaping their approach to interreligious relations were the internal dynamics of Mamluk Egypt and, of course, uh, the Hafsid regime. Baybars founded his regime on defending Sunni orthodoxy at home through a campaign of moral regeneration and abroad through relentless holy war. The Franks made a perfect foil for this outward performance of Mamluk self-legitimation. Amostansir, by contrast, faced centrifugal forces within Ifriqiya so powerful that he had little choice but to look outward for support. 
Hafsid state building in this era was externally oriented. Foreign mercenary soldiers and foreign trade were crucial foundations of dynastic consolidations. So while good relations with Baybars were desirable, they ultimately mattered less than the central Mediterranean networks of exchange that were essential to Hafsid dynastic consolidation. What impact did the crusade have on Amostansir's relations with the powers of the northern Mediterranean? Right, so we have a kind of a conflict model, divided Frankish presence, dynastic stability, more of a negotiation model, sort of European powers, dynastic stability based on peaceful and profitable external relations. Here is the question that I hope to address this afternoon. So Almostensir has extensive uh, commercial, military, and diplomatic contacts with the northern Mediterranean prior to the crusade. In the 1250s and 1260s, he became deeply implicated in European dynastic diplomacy. He aligned himself loosely with the crown of Aragon and the Hohenstaufen rulers of Sicily, forming a kind of Mediterranean triangle bound together by complementary uh, economic interests and, of course, geography. Charles of Anjou's conquest of Sicily in 1266 disrupted this network of exchange and introduced the Capetians of France and the Angevins of Sicily as new actors in the region. A period of instability ensued that culminated in French and Sicilian armies landing at Carthage in the summer of 1270. They would remain there for four months, blockading the port of Tunis and depriving the city of commercial traffic. Amostansir only secured their withdrawal by paying a large indemnity to the crusade leaders and becoming a tributary to the Sicilian crown. So here's Charles of Anjou, also, also well known, but he's going to become the king of Sicily. Here is a famous passage describing what is often called the tribute, but is really, I think, initially more like an import fee that is paid uh, to, to import Sicilian wheat into Tunis. Here is the Treaty of Tunis, and let's get to the key financial provisions. So the Treaty of Tunis called for the emir to pay the crusaders 210,000 gold ounces, each worth 50 sous tournois, giving the payment a total value of 525,000 livres tournois in French currency. This is a lot of money. For Louis' first crusade, when, when he was uh, captured in the Nile Delta, he had had to pay 400,000 uh, livres tournois to redeem his own person. So it is more than that. And of course, he had had to... Um, surrender Damietta for himself. So he pays 400,000 for the army, Damietta for himself. As for the tribute, Elmostensio agreed to pay five years of arrears of what he had once paid the Hohenstaufen of Sicily at the original rate of 12,000 gold ounces with the rate doubling to 24,000 gold ounces for future annual payments. So he pays five years of arrears, which gives a 60,000 ounce payment one time and then Annually going forward, it is 24,000 gold ounces from then on. In many ways, the Tunis Crusade was a calamity for those who were involved on both sides. There are heavy losses suffered amongst the Crusaders and in the city of Tunis as well. Diseases that devastated the Crusader camp also struck the city hard, leading to the deaths of many soldiers and civilians. The Tunis Crusade sowed devastation across all divisions of rank and religion. 
But although the immediate consequences of the crusade were dire, El Mostancio survived and in some ways even thrived in the wake of the Tunis Crusade. Once the crusaders had gone home, he informed his counterparts in the central and western Maghreb that he had saved the Muslims by concluding a peace with the crusaders. He collected the indemnity he owed to the crusader kings without a struggle. In many ways, uh, the expedition accelerated rather than halted the Hafsid dynastic consolidation that was already underway by the time the crusade arrived. After crushing the Banu Masud in 1268-69, El Mostanser used the occasion of the crusade to rally other disaffected elements to the regime. This was especially true in the, in the contested lands west of Tunis. Abu Hilal Iyad, the governor of Bujaya, proved his loyalty by bringing troops, as did Abu Zayan Muhammad bin Abdel Kawi, the leader of the Banu Tujin, the Zanata Berber rivals to the Abdel Wadids in the west. And I should mention more calamities of the crusade because this is important too. There's a huge storm that wrecks the crusader fleet on their return from Tunis at Trapani. So here we have more impact of the crusade. Also, of course, following the crusade, we have more internal consolidation with the conquest of Algiers in 1274-75. The point that I want to make that I think is very important is that this violent assertion of internal control dependent on peaceful external relations, which El Mostanser cultivated with great success after the Tunis Crusade. He paid the tribute he owed to Charles of Anjou regularly, and this was really interesting. It's a very difficult financial transaction in the 13th century, just moving the money around. Uh, in the fall of 1271, Charles assigned a traveling party to collect the tribute that included three notables of Messina, one of Palermo, and no less a figure than Philippe of Tusi, who's the admiral of the Regno, uh, all to collect the money. Accompanying Philip was a clerk from the mint at Brindisi, whose job was to verify the weight and quality of the currency. Collection procedures were no less elaborate in, su in subsequent years. In 1272, there's another large mission. We have three galleys that are sent to collect the, the tribute, and we have Adam Morier, the vicar general of Sicily, and Roberto Infante, the justiciar, to collect the tribute. Collecting money cost money. So in 1276, the uh, Sicilian uh, crown actually calculated that it cost uh, 1,385 gold ounces to collect the tribute. So it was a very tricky business indeed. So that is the one side, is El Mostanser paying the tribute. On the other side, of course, what's really interesting is that Charles of Anjou honors his side of the treaty. He honors the commitments that he makes to El Mostanser. So this is especially in terms of the suppression of piracy in the waters between Tunis and Sicily. We have an interesting letter where Charles actually writes to his officials on Malta, telling them to desist from pirate attacks on Hafsid vessels. Important to note that Charles is not interested in suppressing piracy in general. He's only interested in suppressing piracy against his friends and allies, such as the, such as the Hafsids. Uh, in 1275, he makes Provencal pirates swear an oath. So we have, right, they have to swear that they should not harm that magnificent man, the king of Tunis, our tributary and an ally to us, his vassals or other friends of ours. So here is Charles 
honoring his agreements. The commercial relationships that were so central to the Hafsid regime, it should be noted that these commercial relationships are renewed uh, following the crusade. So we have June 1271, treaty with Venice. We have January 1272, treaty with Genoa. We have February 1271, a treaty with the crown of Aragon. Very, very important commercial renewals. In addition, we of course have a revival of commerce with Sicily itself. And this is very essential as well. There was of course a famous exchange of gold for wheat in the, in the central Middle Ages that was crucial to the relationships between these two sides of the Sicilian, of the Sicilian Straits. By 1275, we have the opening of a funduk uh, in Tunis, a Sicilian funduk, and so we really have a restoration of trade there as well. The Balancing Act, um, the trick, of course, for a Mostanzer is that his commercial relationships involve him in negotiations with European powers who are in many ways hostile to each other, right? So he has to reconcile these sort of competing forces. Uh, peace with Angevin Sicily as a result of the crusade did not actually curtail Almostanser's relations with other Mediterranean powers, even with those Charles called his enemies. In effect, the emir accepted the financial implications of his tributary status, but not the political. After the crusade, Almostanser moved to restore his relationships with the Italian maritime republics and the crown of Aragon. So, the situation in particular with Genoa was complicated, uh, and it's worth discussing a little bit. The Genoese had not chosen Tunis as the target of the crusade. Back home in Genoa, the diversion was unpopular. It was widely believed that nothing good, uh, to quote the uh, Genoese annals, would come from crusading to Tunis. Even so, Genoese sailors and marines had played an active role in the campaign, sailing the fleet from Cagliari to Tunis, then leading the successful attack on Carthage. On the arrival of the fleet off of Tunis, Amostansir had taken Genoese merchants working in the city into custody. He seems to have been more interested in protecting them than punishing them. He actually puts them up in the royal palace complex, but the fact remained that he had taken away their freedom for several months. As it turned out, the Hafsids and the Genoese were able to put the crusade behind them with little fuss. Within two months of the Treaty of Tunis, the Genoese were trading in Ifriqiya again. On the 5th of January, 1271, a Genoese crusader who was stranded in Trapani after this storm that I was describing earlier contracted two loans with colleagues. So we have Jacobo Sibo borrowed money from Montanino of Camilla and Venturino of Pavia, which Jacobo promised to pay back within nine days of landing in Tunis. So this is January of 1271. The crusade ends in November 1270. Within two months, we have Genoese trading again. We have this normalization is marked by the Treaty of 1272. And in many ways repeats the provisions of the earlier treaty between Genoa and Hafsid Tunis of 1250, 
but there are some interesting and, and subtle differences between the two treaties that could reflect the experience of the crusade. So there were currency disputes uh, alluded to a little bit this morning involving French and Genoese merchants in the run-up to the crusade. Perhaps as a result, one new clause in the 1272 treaty required the Genoese to bring only legitimate currency to Tunis and coinage of good, fine silver. Customs officials would seize any counterfeit money they brought into Hafsid domains. Another provision forbade the Genoese from housing foreigners, by which I mean so non-Genoese in this case, in their funduk. Perhaps this had been a source of misunderstanding uh, during the crusade itself. And in return for these security measures, the chief Hafsid negotiator, the head of the customs house of Tunis, Abul al-Hassan Yaha bin Abdul Malik offered a trade concession. The Genoese would not pay duty on goods sold to other Christians in Tunis. Under the impetus of this agreement, Hafsid Genoese commerce flourished again. In 1275, as the Angevins established their funduk in Tunis, the Genoese opened a second funduk of their own to house their growing expatriate community. So this Hafsid Genoese rapprochement was strong enough to withstand Charles of Anjou's attempt to derail it in 1273 when Charles declared war on the Genoese and called on the Mustanser to honor a famous clause in the Treaty of Tunis that called for enemies of the Angevins to be expelled from Ephrikian markets. There is a sort of a history of relations going sour, um, going badly between Genoa and Charles of Anjou um, since Charles had come to power in 1266. Charles and the Genoese had agreed to a truce in August of 1269, but it did not survive their time together on the Tunis Crusade. On 28 October 1270, while Charles and the Genoese Crusaders were camping together outside of Carthage, there had been a revolution within the city of Genoa that had brought the Ghibellines, or the pro-imperial faction, to power there over Charles's faction, the Guelph. The danger the Crusade seemed to pose to Genoese trade with Tunis and to Genoese nationals in the city may have stoked popular anger that contributed to the Guelph downfall. So Charles does this amazing thing. It's really quite horrible. Uh, after the storm on Trapani that destroyed the Crusader fleet, Charles asserts an ancient custom, coutume ancien de le regno, according to which everything recovered from a shipwreck along its shores, which was not claimed by its owners within three days, belonged to the treasury. And immediately after that, he makes an exception for Philippe III, for the, for the new king of France after Saint-Louis, saying, yes, they can claim their goods. And so the only people who are liable for the shipwreck law are, in fact, the Genoese. So he's basically taken all their stuff after the crusade. The Genoese protest. Then they start uh, a campaign of privateering along the Tyrrhenian coast, and then Charles looks to gather his allies, including Hafsid Tunis. And will Mustansir join Charles against Genoa? Short answer, no. Continue to pay tribute, but he will ignore the political demands of Genoa. So also, Mustansir has to maintain a balancing act with the crown of Aragon, which is similar, where he has to 
on the one hand, maintain his good relations with Charles, and on the other hand, maintain good relations with Jaume, king of Aragon. Thanks to some deft maneuvering, to conclude, Hafsa de Frikia had not fallen into the sphere of influence of any European power as a result of the crusade. Paradoxically enough, I believe, the Sicilian tribute proved crucial to carving out this freedom of action. So long as Charles received his money, a Mostansir could retain maximum latitude in his dealings with other Mediterranean powers. The status of a tributary bought the emir a broader independence that was precious indeed. And I think I will end there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website www.themagrebpodcast.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts or visit the webpages of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies and the Centre d'études Maghrebines à Tunis, CEMAT. See you soon for a new episode. Thank you.